Hello and welcome to the Unheard podcast and a very happy new year to you all if you're still allowed to say happy new year. I think you can if you haven't uh, conversed with your dear friends uh, and it's not July, I think it's all um, good. I'm Aisha Hazarika, your host for the podcast today and I'm joined by the Unheard um, editor Tim Montgomery and John Stiefel uh, who's the former deputy editor of the Daily Mail. I believe he was there for a very long time, almost 30 years. That's correct and is now enjoying his life and his freedom and um, is doing lots of interesting work and is an advisor to Unheard. And one of the things we wanted to focus on today is a very interesting series of reports we did over Christmas called Underreported. Now the clue is obviously in the title. These have been some of the really, really big issues that have probably gone under the radar. You yourself are probably not aware of them, but they're very substantial, important issues which we at Unheard felt needed exploring. And remember, the ethos of Unheard is the important, not the new. So, um, Tim, why why did you want to commission the series and why did you want to do it sort of over Christmas and the New Year? Well, whether it was right to do it over Christmas and New Year is, is another question. We are going to continue it, actually. It certainly began as a sort of a one-off burst of um, observations, but we're going to carry on as a regular feature on the website looking at underreported stories. But um, I don't know how many times you have woken up in the morning over the last year, Aisha, and the headline has been about Donald Trump or about Brexit. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, there is only a certain amount of hours in the Radio 4's Today programme. There's only a certain number of pages in the um, Guardian newspaper. And if so much coverage and attention is given to these extraordinary phenomena, um, then certain things aren't being covered. And you know, one stat that we covered on Unheard, um, Nigel Cameron, our um, technology editor on Earth, was on one particular day, 83% of coverage on CNN was devoted to Trump. And that was just my show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry about that. And um, a brilliant show it is as well. Um, but what are we not covering? Um, what are we not learning about when such a large percentage of media output, media brains, media resources is going on these two subjects? And personally, I think there's are always certain biases in the media by the nature they're more interested in the new they're interested more I think in politics than culture and technology they're more interested in controversial subjects that will generate an um, entertaining debate rather than necessarily thoughtful debate but I think the problem of you know people talk about the newspapers being biased to the left or the right or liberals or conservatives I think the much more fundamental bias, um, which is part of Unheard's mission, is a media bias to certain kinds of story. And what we wanted to do was address um, with our series, give alternative ideas that could be given more attention. And I mean, John, you were at the Daily Mail for, for, for a long time, and obviously, you know, Brexit is a huge issue for, for, the, for is sort of, you know, meat and drink for, for the Daily Mail, as lots of other newspapers. Do you think it's just unrealistic to expect newspapers to not still just go for these sort of big predictable kind of stories, you know, on a loop? It's, it's not unrealistic, no. Um, I think newspapers will continue to 
dwell on those kind of stories because they're the stories which are high up their agenda and they regard them as mattering most to them and to their readers and to the politicians they engage with. But they'll make a terrible mistake if they fall into the trap of boring readers to tears by only ever doing the same thing. And it's a great challenge to newspaper editors or radio editors or TV editors to vary the mix and to find other things to put in there beyond the two or three obvious subjects on a loop. And I think one of the things that a lot of people quite find quite um, frustrating is that they do see lots of other things going on other than Brexit, for example, whether it's the health service, whether it's social care, whether it's education. We've just you know, seen this horrendous collapse of sort of Carillion and lots of people do ask the questions, well, why has no one been talking about this stuff before it becomes a crisis? Mm. Yeah, um, one of the alternative names... Uh, John may remember this, um, that we had for Unheard before we launched was Upstream. Yeah. And um, we didn't call ourselves Upstream, not least because the British Petroleum um, have a magazine named after, uh, called Upstream, it's all about um, uh, crude oil and things, so it was uh, <laughs> <laughs> taken. Slightly mixed messages. Uh, <laughs> but um, news is inevitably interested in the latest thing. Yeah. Um, but actually today in laboratories across Britain, America, the world, in academic seminars, um, in the studios of playwrights, ideas are being born that will be affecting us tomorrow. And it's not easy necessarily to know which ones will have the impact, but politics for me, and certainly for conservatives, and, uh, of which I'm, I'm one, politics is the, really one of the least, impo- least important disciplines. It's, it's in arts, it's science, it's, it's in big ideas. Politics is downstream from all of those things. and. We want to get a bit at that as well. Well, absolutely. I mean, there's all these studies that show that, you know, normal people spend such a tiny fraction of their lives worrying about politics or being engaged in politics. Yet, for us, I suppose, in our bubble, that's all we obsess about. And that's Mm. why we are then surprised there's a disconnect between the bubble and sort of the rest of the world. And that's why people in the bubble are, it's like, oh, I didn't see Brexit coming. It's like, because you're probably not talking about a lot of the big things that people are, are talking about. But and, 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 you know, we're involved in the conversations I have been in the past, Tisha. How much of the conversation we have with other political people is about who's up, who's down. Absolutely, who, you know, it, the it's gossip. Not, yeah, it's not even about poli- you know, political policy. Yeah. So, um, and that was one of the things, one of the interesting contributions I thought in the series was from Gisela Stewart, the former Labour MP, a backer of Brexit. And her point was, yes, there's been all this coverage of Brexit and Trump, but it's not even been particularly good coverage. You know, the, the coverage about Trump is nearly always about his tweets, not necessarily about what the government is doing. And the coverage of Brexit is all about our divorce from the EU, as important as that may be, rather than a debate about what Britain could build yeah. after we've left. And no. so the coverage, even though... those two subjects are getting lots of attention doesn't mean it's necessarily the best and most informing of attentions. More more than that, it's it's actually a dangerous territory for the media because if, and I'm sure you're right Aisha, that that people are not spending much of their time engaged with or thinking about or mulling over politics, if all they're getting from their media is a recycled set of stories about Brexit or about Trump, then it's going to turn them off. Mm. They're going to look for something else, which is what persuades people to look for something different, go in another direction and doubt whether or not they should be parting with their few pence or few dollars to buy that newspaper. Well that's clearly happening isn't it? I mean we're seeing newspaper sales sort of dive. I mean there's a whole generation of people that probably have never ever bought 
a newspaper and they would just not think of acquiring their news that way. I mean, Although in, I in the short term, it's been good for a couple of American titles have done quite well. I think Trump certainly for certain people is appealing. I think there's a broader danger it's turning off most people and you just have a the narrower group of people who are reading newspapers perhaps are buying more at the yeah. moment. The, the, the New York Times, CNN, uh, Financial Times in America have actually boosted, uh, their profits have been boosted because of this phenomenon. Because of this phenomenon. Mm. I mean, I also think another interesting thing is the sort of who who dictates in the newsrooms, whether they're television, radio, newspapers, you know, what is it that we mm. want to, to hear about? And I think having plurality of subjects, having a kind of a rich mix of different subjects is so important. When I was at kind of journalism school, it was sort of what is news itself, which is new, true and interesting. And I think you're right, and I'd love to, I mean, when you were in your sort of morning conference meetings, was it always quite repetitive, particularly, to, you know, when Brexit and the EU referendum was, was it just Brexit, 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 or did people challenge that ever in the newsroom and say, actually, let's talk about something different, or let's put a different slant on it, or let's look at it in a different way, or let's look at other domestic topics? There was always a very robust and very varied discussion about the kind of things we should be covering. But the reality was that the, the menu from which the biggest stories would be picked was quite a small one. Uh, and it would go round in circles with variations on the same topic <coughs> becoming the most important thing, partly because of the phenomenon that Tim has identified many times, is that people become obsessed with who won the argument over the last 10 minutes, whether it be on Twitter or on some other aspect of social media. Um, the other side of it you have to understand is in, in a, a newspaper or a TV or a radio editorial conference, whether it be a news or a features issue, there are people in those conferences pitching their ideas in the hope their ideas are well received and will make it onto a list to get into the paper or onto the airwaves. So they are inevitably going to be quite conservative and go for safe bets in what they pitch. The last thing they want to hear when they pitch a brilliant, new, innovative, unheard idea is an editor saying, why do I care about that? So where is the risk-taking going to come from, do you think? Or do you think we're just going to get more of the same, let's say, as we make our way through 2018? Well, one thing I will say is I think there is some amazing journalism out there at the moment and there's some things that we didn't have a few years ago that have been a huge addition to you know, the, the, the media. The iPad edition of the New York Times is an amazing journalistic resource. We have TED Talks and we're able to access foreign newspapers. There's lots of things that the internet and technology has enabled that we didn't have. I don't want to say it's all negative about what's going on in the media, but one of my concerns, I don't know whether... John shares this concern is that if you're a newspaper like The Guardian and your circulation is falling and within the say the Labour uh, ranks uh, there is a massive shift towards supporting Jeremy Corbyn it's very hard commercially when you're fighting for your life as a Guardian newspaper even if you perhaps believe that Corbyn is not a good thing to stand up against that and as newspapers circulations dwindle generally I wonder whether we are having even more partisanship in our newspapers because they are not speaking or even able to speak for large numbers of people. They are increasingly speaking for sections. But I th don't you think that's been happening for such a long time in, in the British media? I mean, you can argue absolutely The Guardian has, has spoken for the, for the left, for somebody mm. like me, although I do notice... I mean, The Guardian has been quite critical, was very critical about Jeremy Corbyn in the year, in the run-up to the general election. And, mm. you know, if anything, f fell out of favour with T 
team Corbyn. They actually just dropped Paul Mason, who was um, you know a big Corbynista as one of their columnists recently. But you know, John, the, the Daily Mail has you know peddled a certain view of politics in the world, uh, quite a strong anti-immigrant rhetoric, a you know anti-EU rhetoric. I mean, for a very very long time, I think certainly if you look at newspapers newspapers have been partisan for such a long time wouldn't you say i think that's right some newspapers have made changes and movements along the years but generally speaking there'll be a set of core values which if you're a successful newspaper you're going to adhere to not because you don't have the imagination to change but because you recognize what your readers may actually buy into and believe in and you're you're and this is perhaps a lesson for the guardian which they've never properly learned is there is no point um engaging in newspaper activity if you can't find a way of getting people to buy that newspaper. Um, <laughs> if, you're, if you're going to maintain a level of success which supports and justifies the journalistic activity, unless you're a fortunate group like The Guardian and the, with the Scott Trust, then you need to be able to be commercial. You need to be interesting people and you need to be not necessarily leading their views but echoing their views and reflecting their views and making them feel comfortable. The danger, as, as I say, is that it restricts you to too few subjects. And the great challenge, which some newspapers do better than others, is finding brilliant ways of reinventing the wheel, finding new clever ideas of presenting how they present themselves, and content which does surprise people. I mean, I, I have to say, I mean, not that I'm a huge defender of The Guardian, I think all newspapers are, are struggling with that. I think most newspapers feel quite embedded in their brand and almost quite trapped by their the core values as you as you say and I think you know most newspapers are not doing particularly well from a commercial point of view but just I mean going back to our our underreported series which we should um, spend a bit of time just talking through some of the themes I mean I, I thought some of the contributions were, were were absolutely excellent like a really broad mix of contributors we had Nicholas Sturgeon on period poverty which is a subject I'm, I'm, I'm very passionate about Emily Thornbury on artificial intelligence, Marco Rubio about Apple and whether it's a truly American company, and Brendan Cox um, on the rise of authoritarian regimes in the EU. So we had a really great spread of of contributors. Tim, what what kind of stood out for you as some of the the things that really caught your interest? Um, I'm really pleased with the series um, overall, and it's why what I had intended to be you know, just a seasonal thing over the festive period, we, we knew we were going to carry on. Is um, it like an advent calendar? Yeah, a late um, advent calendar. Um, some of the things that... I think it was some of the military contributions, actually, that um, most impressed um, me. We had some people on from both sides of the Atlantic immersed in defence. And I don't know about you, but... I was unaware of some of the um, new missiles and other technologies that have been developed and where Russia and China are, are pouring a huge amount of money and could well be able in a few years' time to be um, drawing much more level with America. Um, and there's particularly this uh, Robert Rosencrantz wrote about the development of hypersonic missiles which would be able to m- cross the world so quickly that they could change the calculations that politicians could make about wow. you know, conventional warfare taking off very rapidly. And you know, I'm 47, you know, I've grown up really with the whole acceptance of my thinking about how the world works is the West has better weapons, we have more money, we are able to militarily be superior. Um, 
And I think that's probably true given what America's spending on defence. It's going to continue for a little while. But I suddenly looking at these contributions, I thought, how long and how different would the world be if actually some of these other authoritarian and other regimes were able to outfight America in certain theatres? And China's certainly investing hugely in the, the space race. And um, this was just one example of something I didn't know much about. I regard myself as a relatively informed person, and I, um, I, I wasn't aware of this at all. Uh, well, I mean, that is absolutely fascinating, given the shifting geopolitics. And again, in our bubble, we get so focused mm. on the minutiae, and there's these huge things happening, Russia, China, North Korea, you know, there's, and I think actually you know, geopolitics and the military is going to be a huge theme for 2018. And, uh, we've, of course, in Britain, we've had the um, Carrie Gracie affair where the BBC's China editor um, resigned because she's getting paid an awful lot less than her male peers. And Peter Franklin, one of the unheard team, wrote in a sort of an interesting postscript to that. And he said, one of the justifications given for the difference was that the, the North America editor had to report more than the China editor. And his point was, is that a sensible thing, <laughs> given what's the, how the world is changing? Absolutely. I mean, China is so important. You know, President Xi is the most important man on the planet. And the idea that you don't think you're a China editor is that important is absolutely mm. ridiculous. By the way, uh, the Brussels editor is pretty important and on the telly a lot. And she is also paid <laughs> less than the men. So let's just get that on the record. John, what, what popped out um, for you from, from some of these underreported stories? Things, but, but an interesting issue, I think, around China, <clears throat> which clearly is desperately underreported and not properly understood. There are many reasons for it, not least the fact that few UK media outlets have proper correspondents or editors there. But if you ask at 10 people in the street what they can remember about China in the last couple of months, they'll remember the Carrie Gracie story. Mm. They won't remember anything about China. They'll remember a story which was about BBC, about personality, about gender pay gap, about things which are actually irrelevant to China themselves, and it's just a symbol of our lack of reporting of it. There are, the journalists are to blame for that to a great extent, because we all are obsessed with what is instantly accessible and is very easy to understand and easy to engage with and we understand why it's for the reasons I've said earlier to do with what you think readers may want to read but every journalist in Britain sits there following Twitter all day every day obsessed with bits and pieces that are on Twitter they think they know a little bit about China but they probably don't know whether or not Twitter exists in China if they know that there's something called Weibo which is China's equivalent of Twitter they wouldn't begin to understand how to access it or how to translate it or to follow what's on it so we create a little bubble in which we operate as you say completely and I, I mean Twitter is and I'm absolutely as guilty as this as, as anyone else but you know a hair starts running on Twitter, two journalists or two commentators get into a row. Before you know it, you're in this cul-de-sac, you've wasted half an hour of your life in getting involved in a row, which is really minutiae and not really relevant to the world at all. But whose fault is this, John? Is it our fault as journalists? Is it our fault as readers and consumers of news that we're kind of that we get sucked into all of this? Where where does the responsibility lie I, I to try and lift your sights higher and think bigger about your news and I, your knowledge? I don't think you can blame anybody for it, but I think um, there is a responsibility on mainstream media not to regard something as important purely because it's been trending on Twitter for the last <laughs> half an hour, or purely because it's been shared that many times or liked that many times. It's po is possible to step 
back and decide that something is intrinsically not that important is very transient and should be moved away from. I mean, going back to your question about the 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 the, the, the things within the unheard the underreported series which were particularly interesting, uh, I agree the China stuff was very good. I also found a piece that was done by um, Charlotte. Uh, pickles about the drug companies and their um, vast expenditure on persuading doctors that they should hand out certain types of opioid drugs was a really interesting piece of reporting and was just scratching the surface of a massive story which is literally underreported mm. um, <clears throat> and has huge con is having huge, huge consequences uh, implications which people have, have talked about a little in America with the opioid crisis there but haven't really talked about it in a global sense um, it's a matter of getting people to understand that if you are a drug company, you simply don't want to influence journalists, you don't want to influence politicians, you may wish to influence regulators, but the people you really want to influence are the medical profession, because they are the link between you and the consumer of the drugs. And if the medical profession are on your side, whether you've had to pay them or whether you've had to persuade them or whether you've had to give them hospitality and largesse, then you've achieved a great deal. But that struck me as a really important example of the kind of underreported story and the kind of thing that an organisation like Unheard could be doing more of. Um, I'm will be. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other thing, the other, th I, the, the other thing I found interesting, which is a rather unfashionable subject, was there was a piece by Julia Unwin, formerly from the Roundtree Foundation, all about social care. Now we all think we know a little bit about social care, it's a subject we're, we're reasonably familiar with, but it's a very uncomfortable, unpalatable subject that people don't really enjoy talking about. Yeah. People don't like to confront their own frailty and mortality and the inevitability of how they might spend their latter years. People don't like to think about the cost to the individual or to the state of having to support that. So it falls into that category of when the media are trying to consider what they write about as something that they're not sure their readers will be particularly keen to buy into. So they, they tend to skate over the surface. It would be very interesting to see what happens with Jeremy Hunt now that he's added social care to his brief in the health department. Will that just be a piece of window dressing or will that mean that people actually start reporting on it? Well, I hope people do report on it properly. I mean, it has been the absolute scandal of our age and this is not just this current government, it goes it goes way back, a kind of failure to, to reach a consensus on doing some sort of policy on this. And I think it would be great to read more, instead of just stories about this is the crisis, actually what is the actuality of what's happening in the care sector sort of mm. now, and whether you're a, a carer or whether you're receiving care. I mean, that is such an important topic that, that we just don't, we definitely don't talk about enough. Joining our last two conversations um, together, um, our, our last two topics together, um, Michael Burley, uh, one of our colleagues at Unheard, was telling me that... Um, I don't know whether you've read about it, but China's introducing this credit system for every citizen. It's quite sinister in many respects. You get a number for you know, how reliable you are in all sorts of ways. I feel I'm looking aghast, and <laughs> I think my, my, my number would be very low. It's a, it's a real big brother thing, and it's, it's not a good thing. I put that on record. But interestingly, the biggest demerit you can get in the system from the Chinese government is if you if the authorities decide you're not looking after your parents. Ah. The Chinese state has decided that the cost of this, the social implications of it are so great, it is the one thing that they will punish people in this system for more than anything else. Wow. So sort of put In terms of putting that issue at the heart of how they're thinking, they, like on so many issues, are ahead of us. Wow, that's, that is fascinating. And in terms of looking ahead to 2018, are there any 
topics that you would like to see explored, sort of new themes or topics? I think Aisha Hazarika's takeover of the British media. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I second that. (laughs) Um, I I would actually like us... uh, I don't know whether you would agree with this. Um, I, I, we're on opposite sides of the Remain Brexit debate, um, Aisha, but um, I would like us, the media to take a bigger role in talking about what's next for the country after uh, we very likely leave the European Union. Um, and Because I think it's been a failure of the political class. They're not doing it um, for all sorts of reasons, and maybe the media could play that role. I, would, I definitely agree with that. I would also... My, one of my frustrations about the whole where the Brexit uh, discussion, and we're not going to go down a rabbit hole on this, but so many of the underlying social mm, problems yeah. that, that probably massively influenced the Brexit vote are not being addressed. And this could be a big opportunity to address those and talk about those, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's opportunity outside London, whatever it is. And I feel that's massively been missed. Um, for me, I think we've spoken a lot about the gender pay gap this year, and, and that is a quest that carries on. I'd like us to talk a little bit more about the ethnic minority pay gap um, and look at that, because I think that's a, a, an area which is getting sort of lost um, in, in quite a lot of our discussions on equality. And what about you, John? What's the sort of um, subject you'd a, like? A couple of things that, that, that interest me, one or two of which I've mentioned to Tim. Um, slightly narrower themes than the two of you have suggested. I would like to see some proper examination of the extraordinary power of Amazon, which oh, we all yeah, ta- we all yeah, take for granted. Yeah. It all uh, it's part of our lives, but how far is the extent of its power, the extent of its tentacles, its extraordinary reach? That means that 90% of online sales in America between Thanksgiving and Christmas went to Amazon. I'd like to see that investigated and examined, and the question asked whether that's a force for good. <coughs> and a r- slightly different subject. I think we're all having a love affair with Emmanuel Macron at the moment and being rather seduced by his fantastic PR and diplomacy. And it's caused everyone to rather take the eye off the, their eye off the ball of some terrible problems there are in France, social, economic, political, ethnic problems. And uh, I'd be very interested in people turning the spotlight back on all of that. Yeah, and indeed across Europe, there are lots of big issues sort of coming down the the track. I mean, I think tracking the kind of independence movements that are springing up across Europe is, is a really interesting thing um, as well. well. Liam Halligan says Italy is the country to watch. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, well, there were a number of interesting referendums which were not binding, they were advisory, but they, mm. they, they were sort of sowing some interesting seeds in that sense. Now, just in the remaining time that we have left, we, we, we talked about The Guardian earlier and we talked about the sort of media landscape a bit. What do we think about the Guardian's relaunch? I mean, they have tried to do what what, what you were suggesting, John, in terms of the, they have this relaunch. What do you what do you make of the new paper? Um, well, uh, newspaper relaunches are incredibly difficult things. They're they, as difficult as political relaunches, aren't uh, they? Uh, probably. <laughs> they 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 involve a massive amount of creativity, a massive amount of effort, a massive amount of argument to get yourself anywhere near to a point where you can relaunch something, and you're not going to keep everybody happy. I think in the case of The Guardian, it's a belated acceptance that the Berliner experiment was a foolish vanity project and they wasted a lot of money and a lot of time doing it and they shouldn't have done it. So what you really think, uh, John? (laughs) (laughs) What I think about the new one is uh, the paper has a certain freshness about it. It has a certain consistency with Guardian values and Guardian authority. Visually, I don't think it looks quite modern enough. I think the typography is 
I'm finding myself somewhere between the Evening Standard and the Sunday Times and not necessarily in a distinctive place. But I like the way the sections are structured through the paper, so I think it, it, it has something fresh to it. I think the website, and I know Tim has views on this, has some other problems. I think it's a bit of a jumble. Mm. And navigation around websites, given that we all spend all our lives online, is really important. And I don't think they've improved that particularly. Tim, your views? You were um, a uh, fan or not? I, I almost completely agree with everything that John's said, so I won't um, repeat, say the same thing. It, you know, one great uh, journalist we lost over the Christmas New Period was Peter Preston. Absolutely. You know, the former editor of the of the Guardian. I'm afraid I'm old enough to remember. I'm, I'm afraid, and you are too, of course, John. Is that radical redesign that he, you know, he presided over um, in the 1980s, where the Guardian just looked completely different from anything we'd ever seen um, before. And um, this, I think, there are drawbacks and there are uh, positives about this, but it certainly wasn't anything of that scale. And. Um, I don't think it will probably affect the Guardian hugely one way or the other. I, I kind of agree with that. It, it, it's probably not that exciting to, to most people. I no. mean, for me, uh, I don't mind the size of it. I actually quite like the Berliner um, format. I quite like it. And I like <laughs> the masthead. I thought the blue and the, the sort of lettering that they had. I think the, the new lettering just looks a bit nondescript, um, really. But I'm sure um, the Guardian has spent, as you say, a lot of time and effort and probably um, can't please all of the people all of the time can you on these things you, you can't you can't do that one thing one thing that I would have done in the highly improbable event that I'd been in the position to be the relauncher <laughs> of the Guardian is that I've made sure my day one had a fantastic exclusive story and they didn't ah well thank you so much uh, to my guest Tim Montgomery John Stiefel uh, you've been listening to Aisha Hazarika on the Unheard podcast you can hear more um, fantastic content and read lots of interesting articles uh, please go to our website uh, unheard.com and we will be back with you next week goodbye <laughs>